So I think if I were asked what was the most well-known story or event in the entire Bible, known not only by churchgoers, but even by people who've never been to church, I would probably have to say that it would be the events that are detailed for us where we're going to look this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the encounter of David and Goliath. This is so well known, in fact, that the phrase David and Goliath has found its way into secular culture. When a small, struggling college team faces a a national powerhouse team, the commentators will often refer to that as a David and Goliath matchup. It's become a metaphor for the little guy taking on the big guy. And in fact, that's how that story is almost always taught and discussed in Sunday school and in church. It's almost always told from the standpoint of, if you just trust God like David did, then you'll conquer all your giants in life too. But is that really true? Is that really the lesson that we're supposed to get from this here? Of course, there are numerous uh, applications that we can take from David's encounter with Goliath, many of them, but we need to be very careful not to try and rubber stamp this story onto our own circumstances. The lesson of David and Goliath is not that anyone can beat a bigger opponent if he's just brave enough and if he just trusts in God enough. That's not the message of David and Goliath. There's something much bigger and far more important taking place here. And I want to try and open that up for us from this chapter today. Now, what we won't have time for today is if if we really wanted to get into the much bigger picture of David and Goliath, we could look at how This story is just part of the larger narrative of the Old Testament, which all joins together to form one cohesive story that all points to Christ. We've seen it now in our Through the Bible study already. Adam was a picture of Christ. Noah was a picture of Christ. Uh, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Boaz, all pictures of Christ. And so too, David this morning in this chapter is a picture of Christ, probably more so than any other person in the Old Testament. Now, you'll see some things coming to life, even though I'm not going to have time to focus on all of this, but as we go through this this morning, there will be some things that will trigger in your mind of things we've talked about And there'll be reminders to you of just how much David is a picture of Christ. Because just like David, Christ came from Bethlehem. Just like David, he was a shepherd of the flock. Just like David, he was chosen and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Just like David, he came in obedience to his father. Just like David, he was rejected by his brothers. Just like David, he didn't look like the expected Savior Just like David, and we'll see this very clearly today, just like David, he willingly became our go-between. He chose to face the enemy on our behalf. And I think you'll see many of those things in the text today that will cause you to think about that broader story 
that David and Goliath is teaching us. It's a foreshadowing of Christ who would one day come and stand in our place to fight and defeat the enemy that we could not fight and defeat. It's a beautiful picture. But this morning, I want to try and draw out one often overlooked truth from this story that has tremendous application to our lives. Well, some time has passed now since we saw in chapter 16 last week how God chose David and Samuel anointed him to be the next king. Some time has gone by and now we arrive in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and what we see is this chapter opens, and by the way, I don't have slides today because this chapter is written in a way that uh, bounces around quite a bit and does some flashbacks, and I tried my best to figure out how to do slides on that, but I I know myself well enough to know that I'm going to be jumping around in my notes a lot today just depending on the moment, and I had no idea how to try to keep up with that with slides, so... We can suffer through it, I think, for one Sunday and use our Bibles. What a chore. So as chapter 17 opens, it's telling us that the Philistines have once again come to attack Israel. And the opening verses paint the scene for us that the Philistines have set themselves up on one hill with their armies, and the Israelites have set themselves up on the opposing hill, and in between them, there's a valley. And then it tells us that there's a man named Goliath who was a giant. Now, you remember back when we were in Exodus and Moses had led the children of Israel up to the border of the promised land, and they sent spies over into the land to bring a report back of what they saw. And when they came back, they said, there are giants in the land who are so big that we look like grasshoppers in their sight. Well, now the Israelites are in that land And we get to meet one of those giants. His name is Goliath. And to help us see how big and intimidating this guy was, the Bible gives us an unusual amount of detail about him that it doesn't do with everyone, starting in verse 4. And I'll just translate this into our modern-day measurements. Starting in verse 4, it says he was 9 feet 9 inches tall. He wore a bronze helmet. He wore a bronze coat of armor weighing 125 pounds. He had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was as big as a weaver's beam. Just the iron point of his spear alone weighed 15 pounds. And he had some lucky guy who was a shield bearer walking in front of him. (laughs) Now, I think it gives us this overly detailed description of Goliath because we're meant to see exactly what the Israelites saw. And when they looked at Goliath, they saw an enemy who was unbeatable. He was terrifying. And they had already convinced themselves that there was not a man in all Israel who could take on Goliath. But Goliath doesn't just look intimidating. He is also verbally intimidating the Israelites. Now we'll pick up in verse 8. And Goliath stood and shouted to the armies of Israel. Now, he's on top of this one hill. And by the way, if you visit the Holy Land and you have a a tour guide who knows his stuff, he can take you to this very place. You can stand on one or the other hills and you can see this valley in between with the brook that runs there. It's all there. And Goliath stood and shouted to the armies of Israel, 
Why do you come out and array yourselves for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Now that was a slam because they, weren't, they were never supposed to be identified as servants of Saul. They were servants of the living God. Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. Verse 9, if he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And this wasn't just a one-time threat. Verse 16 says that Goliath came out and did this every morning and every evening for 40 days. Now, it's important to note, I think, that what's taking place here is not a full-on battle. The two armies had lined up facing each other, but no actual fighting had started. This was kind of the pre-fight face-off. It was, if you will, the pre-fight smack talk. That's what's happening here. If you've ever seen one of those really highly publicized boxing matches or MMA fights on pay-per-view, the two fighters usually meet beforehand at a press conference and they'll stand there face-to-face, nose-to-nose many times, staring each other down. And then invariably, they'll begin smack-talking one another, trying to intimidate the opponent before the fight. That's exactly what's taking place here in this chapter. The Philistines' champion has stepped up and he comes out on this hill every morning and every evening for 40 days and he's challenging the Israelites to pick a man and send their champion out for a one-on-one fight. So rather than the entire two armies coming together and fighting and there being mass casualties, this is just going to be a one-on-one combat. And the Israelites now need to choose a man who's willing to act as a go-between to represent the people and go and fight on their behalf. Now I find this interesting that Goliath's challenges had gone unanswered for 40 days. Because I seem to remember a few chapters ago, a few weeks ago in our studies, in chapter 9, that the Israelites had already chosen a champion. He was a big, tall, brave-looking man. Remember who it was? His name was Saul. They had made him king. But where is that big man now? Where is their defender and their champion now in the moment when they need him? Well, look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were, including Saul. That man that the Israelites were so sure was going to be the only representative they needed, that man that they thought was going to stand up and fight for them, That man who was tall and strong, who would surely save them from their enemies, that man was cowering in fear along with all the other people. And again, it points us to this repeating theme we've seen in the Old Testament, that every savior that men choose fails them. And it all points to the one savior who will never fail. Saul had now proven to be of no value to them whatsoever in the moment they needed a champion most. So clearly they needed someone else to represent them. They needed someone else to act as a go-between, a substitute. 
Someone with the courage to walk through that valley and climb the hill on the other side and face their foe. And someone with the power and might who was actually able to defeat the enemy. But who could that possibly be? Goliath is challenging them to send a representative. And so the question lingering in the air of the Israelite army is, is there a man who can step forward and defeat this adversary on our behalf? And with that question looming over the Israelite camp, the camera now pans from the battle lines and takes us back to where we were last week, to the family of Jesse and his sons back in Bethlehem. And we're told that David's three older brothers, we're told here in this text in chapter 17, that his three older brothers had joined Saul's army, they had followed Saul to the battle lines, and they were there where all the action was. But where was David, the youngest son, during all this? Now, as a quick reminder, David has already been anointed as the next king, although nobody really knows yet and won't know for years that David is the one anointed for the next king. And David has already had the Holy Spirit come upon him in power. And we know from knowing our Bibles, if we jump ahead in our minds, that David had great things ahead of him. But where was he right now? He was back at home in Bethlehem, watching his father's sheep and running errands for his dad. Before Goliath was ever killed, before David became Israel's champion, long before David ever took the throne, he was serving faithfully day after day, doing menial tasks completely out of the spotlight. There's some important lessons there. Time won't permit me to dive into them all, but maybe you can think about them on your own. Well, starting in verse 17, Jesse sends young David on an errand to take some food to his brothers on the battle lines and bring back news about how they're doing. You know, it's a a heartwarming picture. I think it's something we miss when we read so quickly sometimes. Just that, verse 17, is, is a heartwarming picture of a caring father who misses his boys and wants to make sure they're okay. So David gets up early the next morning, he takes the supplies, and off he goes. He arrives on the battlefront, and verse 22 says, he ran to the ranks of the army to go and greet his brothers. You can't help but get a a picture of the boyish excitement that David feels as he's around all these soldiers, and he can't wait to go and hang out with his brothers. But he didn't get the welcome he expected. Verse 23 As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. Underline that. Verse 24, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Now, there's one thing that stands out to me when I read this chapter and get to this point. Nowhere in this entire narrative so far has God been mentioned. Not once. Saul and his army are terrified of Goliath. They're running and trembling in fear, and it's no wonder. There's no record of even one of them turning their thoughts to God or calling on him for help. 
Wouldn't you think that would be the reflex response to something like this? No, God's long since been forgotten. When David appears on the scene, everything changes. He's the first one to even mention God. He's the first one to bring God into the equation, and he does it immediately. Second part of verse 26, David said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's as though David is slapping these soldiers on the cheek and saying to them, Hey guys, wake up. You're not just any old ordinary army. You are the army of the living God. And once again, we get a glimpse into the heart of young David, the heart that he had for God. It's interesting, you know, Saul and his army had heard God being defiled every morning and every evening for 40 days, and they had done nothing about it. David heard God's name being defiled once, and he said, why is everyone sitting around allowing this to happen? This is wrong. It needs to be stopped. And listen, I'll just give you the good news up front. Whenever you decide to stand against the crowd and defend the honor and the name of God, you are going to face opposition and criticism. David faced it. First, David was criticized by his own brother. Verse 28, David's older brother, Eliab, got angry at David and said to him, what are you doing here? Why aren't you back home looking after the few sheep that you have. You know, it's, a, it's a dig at his little brother. He's insulting him. He's trying to embarrass him in front of the other guys. Now remember in chapter 16, Eliab was rejected by God because he didn't have a heart for God. And now we start to see why. Well, secondly, David was criticized by Saul. In verse 32, David said, I'll go fight this Philistine. But Saul said to David, you're not able to go fight the Philistine because you're just a youth. And he said, this guy has been a man of war from his youth. And I love David's response in verse 36. He said, your servant, he's talking about himself. He said, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, this comes across to us as almost naive confidence. But David does not have confidence in his own abilities. His confidence is totally in the Lord. Look at verse 37. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And when Saul saw bold faith that David had in the Lord, he ran out of excuses, he ran out of arguments, he ran out of criticisms, and he actually said, go, go fight him. And then starting in verse 38, there's kind of this comical scene where Saul, remember big, tall Saul, the tallest guy in Israel, takes his armor and puts it on little David. And he puts the giant helmet on, and David is walking around wobbling like a bobblehead doll. And he eventually just pulls it off, throws it off, and says, I'm not trained for this. I can't fight with this. I'm just going to go. Verse 40, then David took his staff in his hand 
And he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. Now, a lot of you have been in the military. And you may be thinking, boy, a sling is probably not the best choice for weapons. But in fact, the sling had been used by the Israelites for many, many years with great effect. In fact, back in Judges 2016, it tells us that there were 700 select men, all left-handed, oddly enough, 700 select men who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And David had clearly become highly skilled at using a sling. Now, I just want to say this is not the kind of slingshot you may be picturing. It's not the kind you can buy at Walmart for your son, you know, to shoot his sister's eye out. (laughs) It's not the little forked stick with the rubber string on it that you pull back. That's not it at all. A sling in David's day consisted of two long cords, each about three feet in length with a pocket in the middle. And the person would place a stone in the pocket. And by the way, I think sometimes when we picture David and Goliath and David taking the five smooth stones, maybe we're thinking of marble-sized stones. That's not it at all. Usually, history tells us these were two to three inches in diameter, so think maybe tennis ball size. And they would place that stone into the pocket, and they would hold the end of the two cords and begin whirling it around like this. And I'm telling you, they got it going with tremendous velocity. And then they would release one of the cords at just the right time and launch the stone. And when it was propelled correctly, a stone could come out of one of those slings at well over 100 miles an hour. Now listen, in many parts of the Middle East, they still use these exact slings today. You can go online and search for Slings in warfare in the Middle East, and you'll see Associated Press pictures and Reuters pictures of these skirmishes, these clashes that take place where cars are burning and two groups are fighting. You'll see guys with these slings, and they're deadly. Well, off David goes. He's faced criticism from his brother. He's faced criticism from Saul, and now he has to face criticism from Goliath. And I just want to tell you, on your journey to obey God and do what's right, I'll say it again now, the second time, you'd better be prepared for criticism and opposition, sometimes from the people who are closest to you. You better be prepared. You're going to probably have to go through wave after wave of opposition and criticism in order to accomplish the mission God has for you. And so I just say to you this morning, when that happens, don't be defeated. Don't give up. Don't stop. It's part of the process. In verses 41 to 44, Goliath looks at David, this youth, and he says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he cursed David by his God and said, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Seems like a nice man to have tea with. Now listen, at that point, most people would have turned around and hightailed it out of there. They would have run away into the woods screaming like a little girl. But David, David is not driven by human emotion or human will or human strength. David is driven by something much more powerful than the eye could see. And in verses 45 to 47, 
that becomes clear, and this is really the focus of this entire encounter. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Oh, man. <laughs> and he uses his own words back to Goliath. He says, and this day, I'll give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Why? So that everyone can know I'm the champion. Nope. Look at it. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, and all those assembled here will know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. These three verses are the pinnacle of this entire story. They give us a vital truth to learn. This story is not teaching us that the little guy always wins if he's on God's side. This story is not teaching us that you will defeat every giant in your life if you just trust God enough. It's not teaching us about the strength and the skill of David. Listen, here's what we need to learn from this story. What drove David to fight Goliath was his overwhelming desire to defend the honor and the glory of God. That's what fueled his passion. He wanted above all else, above all else, to see the Lord get the glory and the honor. Did you catch the repetition of this so far through this chapter? Everything he says is about the Lord. Verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy not just the armies, the armies of the living God? Verse 36, he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, the Lord will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Verse 45, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Why? So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, and all those assembled here will know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands. I repeat all that for emphasis, so that out of this entire chapter, our eyes and our heart can be drawn to what David's heart is beating for. <coughs> The fuel that propelled him to stand up and take action wasn't a fear that Israel's army would lose. What drove David to action was zeal for the honor of God's name and that God's glory would be known far and wide. Maybe we could summarize it all into one sentence. David was the Lord's anointed, facing the Lord's enemy, in the Lord's name, for the Lord's glory. That's it right there, summarized for you. David was the Lord's anointed, facing the Lord's enemy, in the Lord's name, for the Lord's glory. So many lessons there. Boy, I've got to move on. 
I will just tell you, we need to know who our enemy is and who our enemy isn't. David wasn't fighting his brothers. He wasn't fighting Saul. He was fighting the Lord's enemy. The Philistines in the Bible represented, in general terms, the enemies of God. They had sort of become a, a metaphor for that great enemy of God. David is fighting the right enemy, and he's doing it in the right name, and he's doing it for the right purpose. He was so passionate about this that verse 48 says he ran toward Goliath. I love that. He ran toward Goliath. While all the other tough guys were running away, David was running into the battle. And he fired one stone from that sling. And that great enemy of God was silenced forever. David didn't do this to defend his own honor. He wasn't trying to glorify his own name he was, in a sense, willing to throw himself on the hand grenade to make sure that God's name and God's glory weren't damaged. Nobody forced him to do this. But when everyone else was making excuses, David stepped up and said, I'll go. I'll go. Somebody has got to stand up for God. And I would submit to you, not based on my own conjecture or ideas, based on God's word and on the accounts of history, that God is still looking for people who will stand up for him. He's still looking for people who will go where he needs them to go. And we see this throughout scripture. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Send me. And there have been times like that in history when God looked for someone to stand up for him in a pivotal moment and he found someone. But there have also been times when God searched and found no one who would stand up for him. Ezekiel twenty-two thirty, God said, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found none. I found none. God is looking for people like David who have a heart that is committed to him. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is fully committed to him. I, I have to wonder, have God's eyes ever paused on me? Have God's eyes ever paused on you? When God looks at us, does he say, wow, with all the failures and stupidity and mess and all the junk, you know what I see through all of that? I see a heart that is committed to me. When God finds someone like that, he can do astounding things through that person. And that's what God did through young David that day. Why? Because David's heart so longed to see God honored and glorified above all else. He longed to see God's name become 
known and praised throughout the land. And there's nothing that God can't do through a person like that. And so I wind all this down now by maybe bringing it home for us. And I, I've left out more today than I've said. This is a, it's just a loaded chapter. But I think that's enough for us to try to absorb. And so I wonder about us. You want to know, as I, as I think about this, what comes to my mind, one of the things that comes to my mind that would utterly transform your life and mine, something that would revolutionize, revolutionize our families, our churches, our communities, and even our nation, is if in everything we do, from the small menial things to the great things, in everything we do, if God was our desire, our passion, our driving force, our highest ambition, if it was our desire, our goal, our purpose, our plan, that God would be honored and glorified as a result of everything we do, that his name would be known far and wide, can you imagine the transformation that would take place in this country? If all of us got up every day and lived that entire day for the glory of God. And you know, that's, uh, it's not such an outrageous idea. Because the truth is, we were created to bring God glory. We exist for his glory. So I wonder, how high on our list of priorities and plans and life goals have we placed bringing honor and glory to God? Is it on our list at all? Out of all the things that you aspire to accomplish in your lifetime, is bringing glory to God in the mix at all? David was the only one who stood up to defend God's name. Imagine the impact that could take place if you and I chose to do the same thing. I mean starting in the small things in life. I don't mean going out and starting some great movement for God. You know how great movements are started? They're started in the heart of one person who chooses to stand up and do the right thing. Imagine what could take place if in the so-called small things of life, it was our highest aim in that moment to bring glory to God. Students and boys and girls at home when you are doing your chores and you're obeying and respecting your mom and dad. Imagine if you did all of that with the goal of glorifying God. Imagine in your schoolwork, if you did all of that, in that moment where it would be so easy to cheat and you could cut corners and you could get ahead. Imagine if you chose instead in those moments to say, what am I, nuts? I'm here to glorify God. Imagine if at work, in everything you did, in all the conversations, in all the dealings and negotiations, if all of that was for the purpose of glorifying God. Imagine if in our marriages, in a heated moment, I mean, I don't have those, I've heard people do. In marriage, when you and your wife are having a spat, you're at odds with each other, and you want so badly for your point to be proven right. Imagine if in that moment, instead of pushing it, you said, man, I want this moment with my spouse to glorify God. 
And even as I say these things and give these examples, let's be honest, that all sounds foreign to us, doesn't it? Glorifying God is something we think we do in here on, at 10.30 on Sunday morning. Just imagine what could happen if in the small mundane moments of our everyday lives, it was our highest ambition to say, God, in this little moment, I'm doing this the way I'm doing it to glorify you and that your name would be known far and wide. May we make it our prayer and may we go one step more than that and make it our goal that in everything we do, we would bring glory and honor to God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.